It's March 9, 2009. At Nashville General Hospital in Tennessee, two police officers stand guard outside a room. Nurses in loose scrubs and doctors in trailing white coats dart through the wide corridors. The clinical stench of antiseptics and death permeate the entire building. Two officers are stationed outside the door of James Washington, a convicted criminal, serving a 15-year sentence for attempted second-degree murder. For three days, he has been experiencing chest pains. He also complained to the prison infirmary about suffering seizures. Washington believes he's had a heart attack. He can feel death is coming for him. A tightness returns to his chest. He can't die without clearing his conscience. Washington wants to speak with someone. He doesn't know how much time he has left. He's nervous now, afraid to die. He can't take what he knows to the grave. Washington sits up and calls an officer, James Tomlinson. Officer Tomlinson is one of two transport guards who escorted Washington to Nashville General from the Turney Center, where Washington has been imprisoned for the last three years. Seeing the desperation on Washington's face, Officer Tomlinson wastes no time coming to his bedside. But he can't imagine what this convict is about to tell him. Washington, his face scrunched with pain and his brow dotted with beads of sweat, says, I have something to tell you. You need to hear this. I killed someone. I beat her to death. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of James Washington, a convict, a killer, a man who lived with a dark secret for 13 years, and the desperate lengths he went to to avoid prosecution. About the gruesome murder of a 35-year-old woman just outside Nashville on a hot summer's day in 1995, and how James Washington's deathbed confession finally solves it. I'm Estefania Hageman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's a little before 10.30 a.m. on July 5th, 1995, in Ashland City, Tennessee. It's a warm, muggy morning. Last night, fireworks lit up the sky in celebration of Independence Day. Today, however, is just another ordinary day. Or so it seems. Traffic is light on the Ashland City Highway. Lisa Cowell drives along the highway, blasting the air conditioning, as she scans the FM radio. She stops the dial just long enough to hear a moment of U2's Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. Something odd catches Lisa's eye while using the steering wheels as a drum. She passes an abandoned building that sits along the highway. It used to be a church, a place of worship, sacred ground. Now, it's a derelict den used for drugs and a shelter for the homeless. Out front, Lisa Cowell notices a parked car. It's a dirty black Camaro. In one of the building's windows, she spots the silhouette of what she thinks is a man. Little does Lisa know, she's just seen the outline of a murderer. Just 45 minutes later, the scene at the abandoned church has changed dramatically. Smoke now billows out of the ground floor window. The fire is spotted by James Roy Smothers and his 16-year-old stepson as they head into Nashville. Worried that someone could be inside, Smothers decides to investigate. He and his stepson run up to the broken window where black smoke is spilling out. Through the dense cloud, they see a rolled up rug on fire. The men shield their faces. The smell is overwhelming. Something strange that neither of them recognize. Smothers knows if he leaves now to call the fire department, these flames could consume the entire building. While there is time, he decides to act. He and his stepson pull themselves through the shattered window. There is a stained mattress in the corner of the room. The pair pick it up and throw it on the burning rug to extinguish the flames. It works. As the room begins to clear of smoke, the two men have the fright of their lives when they realize why the rug was set ablaze. Sticking out from the top and bottom of the rolled up charred rug is a pair of human legs and an arm. Smothers shakes with adrenaline. His stepson is pale. They run to the nearest payphone to call 911. Smothers shouts down the receiver. Send the fire department to 4522 Ashland City Highway. My stepson and I, we found a body. By noon, firefighters and crime scene investigators from the Metro Nashville Police Department have secured the scene. In the church, firefighters remove the mattress used to put out the fire and unroll the charred rug to reveal the mutilated and burnt body of a woman. Forensics conclude that the rug had been doused with an accelerant. That's not all. A blood-covered cinder block is lying near the dead woman's head, and the spray from blood spatter decorates the wall. There is no question. This is a homicide. 
The police now need to find out who this woman is. Firefighters and police search the building and grounds for clues. There is nothing on the body or in the building to identify her. Nor are there any leads as to who the killer might be. But there's a good chance the killer is known to the victim. Statistically, most murder victims are known to their attackers. And this is especially true if the victim is female. A 2019 study by the Violence Policy Center reported that 91% of women killed by men were murdered by someone they knew. The best chance to find the culprit is to identify this Jane Doe and find out who she associated with. The woman's body is taken to the morgue for autopsy. Hopefully, her dental records or perhaps her fingerprints will lead to an identification. But the body is horribly deformed. The coroner notes that accelerants were poured onto the victim's skin, just like the rug. The victim's skull is crushed, bludgeoned by a heavy object, no doubt by the blood-stained cinder block found at the scene. The victim's nose and cheekbones are also smashed, and there are several stab wounds to the neck. Next, the coroner determines that there are no signs of smoke inhalation, meaning the victim was undoubtedly dead before the fire was lit. In addition, the toxology report comes back, showing cocaine in the victim's blood. Despite the physical damage to the body, the fingerprints appear fine and are run through the system. There's a match. Just last year, the victim was arrested on a drug charge. The Jane Doe is identified as Joyce Goodener. She was, until today, a resident of Ashland City. Just three days prior, she celebrated her 35th birthday. She leaves behind three daughters, Sonia, age 19, Lakita, aged 15, and Lawanda, aged 13. Investigator Grady Aleem, a 24-year veteran of the Metropolitan Police, and his partner, Sergeant Anna Marie Williams, are assigned to the case. The two shut themselves in a small office that stinks of tobacco and stale coffee. An overflowing ashtray, littered with cigarette butts, is on the table where they sit. Williams opens a folder that will become the murder book for the Joyce Goodner case. It will include the autopsy and forensic reports, crime scene photographs, and all statements Aleem and Williams take down. The partners take stock of what they know so far. Jace Goodener was born July 2nd, 1960. Her family have lived in the Nashville area for generations. Most tragically, Joyce was not only a mother of three, she was a grandmother too. Joyce suffered from a drug addiction, which it is assumed, no doubt contributed to her life spiraling out of control. The detectives learn Joyce's listed address is the Family Life Center, an emergency service for women and children needing shelter and food. Joyce is homeless despite her mother and siblings living in the area. It's possible Joyce's drug use and lifestyle created a schism between her and her family, forcing her to live in shelters like this. However, beyond her drug charge last year, her criminal record is clean. Joyce has no husband, but there is a name and an address for her current boyfriend, a man named Luther Wynn. Investigator Aleem and Sergeant Williams waste no time. They set off to speak with Mr. Wynn.
Luther Wynne sits slumped in a shabby armchair in his small living room. His face is forlorn, shocked by the news. His girlfriend is dead. Murdered. How did it happen? He asks. The detectives offer few details at this stage, but tell him it was a violent end. They want to know his whereabouts during the time of the murder. Luther Wynne swears he was nowhere near where Joyce was killed. He last saw her at 2 a.m. before he went to work at 3.30 that morning, and she was alive and well at that point. Wynne says he did not get off work until 12.30 p.m. According to the coroner's report, Joyce died not long before the body was found, just after 11 a.m. A quick call to Luther Wynne's employer confirms his alibi. He was at work at the time of the murder. Neither investigator Elam nor Sergeant Williams suspects him. But Luther Wynne does offer a lead. He adds that Joyce might have been with another man, someone named James Washington. It's July 6th. Just 24 hours after her body was found, Joyce's murder is all over the news. Lisa Cowell is watching the morning coverage with a steaming mug of Folgers coffee in her hand. She hasn't been able to take a drink. She's glued to the horrifying news. She remembers driving past 4255 Ashland City Highway yesterday morning. One can imagine her shock as she realizes what she witnessed. Lisa Cowell races for the cordless telephone. She gives the police a clue, telling them at 10.30 a.m. yesterday, she drove past the site of the murder and saw a black Camaro parked out front and a man in the window. 30 minutes later, at around 11 a.m., she drove past the building again. Only this time, she recalls the Camaro was gone. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. The detectives now have two leads. They are looking for a black Camaro and a man named James Washington but it will be several days before much headway is made. On July 10th, investigator Aleem and Sergeant Williams managed to track down James Washington's address. A woman in her 30s greets the detectives at the front door. She is Rosalind Butler, James Washington's girlfriend. This is her house, she explains. 
Rosalind and Washington have lived together for two and a half years, but she kicked him out two days ago. The reason, she claims, is due to his excessive drug use. Investigator Aleem and Sergeant Williams need to know where Washington is. He may be the last person who saw Joyce alive. Luckily, Rosalind knows where to find him. He's moved back in with his mother. Before the detectives leave, they ask if Washington has a car. Rosalind says he used to, but his brother took it back just that day. Washington, it seems, borrowed his brother's car with the intent to purchase it. When Washington failed to come up with the money, his brother repossessed it. Sergeant Williams asks Rosalind what type of car Washington was driving. It's a black and gray Chevrolet Camaro. The very same make of car Lisa Cowell spotted outside the derelict building where Joyce Goodener was murdered just days ago. Later that same day, there's an unexpected arrival at the station. James Washington turns up at Nashville Metro to give a statement. He is a 32-year-old black male, about five feet six inches, weighing approximately 160 pounds. He tells the desk sergeant he wants to speak with the detectives handling the Joyce Goodener killing. Rosalind contacted Washington after the detectives left, telling him they want to speak with him. Washington, claiming he has nothing to hide, has come in to tell police everything he knows about Joyce Goodener. Investigator Aleem and Sergeant Williams sit Washington down in a soundproof interrogation room. Sergeant Williams presses the red button on the tape recorder and identifies everyone in the room. This is the statement Washington gives. At 5 a.m. on the 5th of July, he was getting ready for work and was out the door by 6.05. He noticed it might rain. He drove his brother's Camaro to Southern Hills where he worked. Washington's job is not specified, though it's safe to assume it's some form of outdoor labor. When he reached the work site, it was raining hard. He waited 10 minutes for the weather to clear, then decided to leave. Aleem and Williams ask where he went if he didn't go to work. Washington claimed he went to 10th Avenue North, which took approximately 45 minutes. Washington is surprisingly candid about his next series of actions to the detective's surprise. Washington admits to smoking Reddy Rock, a street name for crack cocaine, with a girl named Lucy for about 35 minutes. Afterwards, he wanted to go see a man named Red, but he never did. En route, he ran out of gas. He walked around and scrounged up a measly $2 for gas and then filled up a canister. By then, it was after 9 a.m., and Washington drove back to 10th Avenue North. There, Washington saw Joyce Goodener exit a house belonging to a man named Henry. She approached the Camaro. Joyce asked him if he was doing anything, referring to drugs. Washington said yes, and that he had a 20-cent piece of ready rock that he would split in half in exchange for sex. Joyce Goodener agreed and climbed into the Camaro. According to Washington, he drove her to an alleyway where they allegedly had sex in the car. Afterwards, he took Joyce back to Henry's house, where she asked him to wait for her because she would be back in 30 minutes. Joyce said someone was paying her to wash their clothes. After 45 minutes of waiting, there was no sign of Joyce. Washington left. He said he, quote, went home, showered, and looked at the TV, ate, and went to sleep. 
this was the last he claimed he saw of Joyce. The detectives begin to poke holes in Washington's testimony. They know it shouldn't have taken Washington 45 minutes to get from Southern Hills to 10th Avenue North, that time in the morning when he was traveling. Traffic would have been light. At most, it should have taken 15 to 20 minutes. Washington has no rebuttal to this. That's not the only issue with his statement. The detectives speak with Washington's employer. Washington, it seems, has not turned up to work in days, including the morning of the 5th of July, when he said he left due to the rain. Washington's story, it seems, has sprung a few leaks. But Washington skipping work doesn't mean he murdered Joyce Goodener. Next, the detectives search the black Camaro Washington was driving. After all, it is an exact match to the one Lisa Cowell spotted the day of the murder. After a thorough search of the car and going back over the murder site, there is no evidence to link James Washington to the murder of Joyce Goodener. The detectives are running out of time and leads. The last hope for the detectives is DNA. But in 1995, DNA evidence is still in its infancy. Plus, Washington's admission that he slept with Joyce on the day of the murder has complicated things. If his DNA is found on Joyce, he has explained why. It turns out not to matter, however. While Joyce Goodener's toxicology report corroborates Washington's testimony that they smoked crack together, there is no sign of semen in her body. Because Joyce's body was set on fire, the flames likely destroyed any trace of semen, if it was there at all. At this point, any further DNA testing is useless. Investigator Aleem and Sergeant Williams have hit a dead end. While the detectives suspect Washington of committing murder, there is a staggering lack of evidence to press criminal charges. With no other suspects or leads, the murder of Joyce Goodener goes unsolved. One can imagine the blanket of grief that fell upon Joyce's family, her daughters, her sisters, brothers, and mother will have to live never knowing who brutally murdered Joyce. That is until 13 years later. It's March 3rd, 2009, at the Turney Center Industrial Complex, a state prison in only Tennessee. James Washington is now an inmate. He has been in prison at Turney for three years, convicted of a second-degree murder and sentenced to 15 years imprisonment. Washington lies on the stiff bed in his cell. His chest is tight. Over the next three days, he complains about the pain to his guards. Eventually, Washington is taken to the prison infirmary. He tells Dr. Otis Campbell, the medical director attorney, that he is suffering from chest pains and is experiencing seizures. Dr. Campbell observes that Washington is sluggish and tired, but so far, no one has witnessed the seizures he claims to be having. Washington, though, is adamant he needs care, and Dr. Campbell can't, in good conscience, let the matter drop. As an act of caution, he sends the prisoner to Nashville General Hospital to be checked out thoroughly. Washington is convinced he's dying. He is escorted to the hospital by Officer James Tomlinson and Corporal Homer Lee Carey. 
Officer Tomlinson will later recall Washington as calm on the ride over, albeit somewhat nervous. But little do his escorts know. The situation for Washington is about to drastically change in ways neither could imagine. At noon, Washington, who is hooked up to an EKG machine to monitor his heart, cracks. He drops his bombshell confession. I've got something I need to get off my conscience, he says. I have killed somebody. This hardly comes as a surprise to Officer Tomlinson, who first hears the confession. After all, Washington is in prison for second-degree murder. Washington adds, I beat her to death. Realizing he is not referring to his current conviction, Officer Tomlinson calls Corporal Carey into the room. Washington feels death is coming for him. He doesn't expect to leave the hospital alive. What do you want to confess? Corporal Carey asks. I want to confess about killing a girl, Washington replies. Corporal Carey asks Washington to clarify. Is he confused and trying to confess to the crime he's convicted of already? Washington says the girl's name was Joyce Somebody. Good something. Struggling to find the right name, he adds. Goodener or Goodman in Ashland City. Washington this whole time is calm. He's finally cleared his conscience and can now die in peace. Except he doesn't die. The doctors tell Washington he hasn't suffered a heart attack, nor have they noticed any signs of seizures. In fact, there's nothing life-threateningly wrong with James Washington. His chest pains may be a result of his high blood pressure, which he takes several forms of medication to treat. But the news of his clean bill of health must have been a short-lived relief for Washington. He mistakenly thought he would die and has prematurely confessed to a murder. Now, he will return to prison with the consequences of what he's just admitted looming over his head. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The weightlessness Washington must have felt when he first confessed, thinking he was on his deathbed, must now feel like a boulder on his chest. The only regret he feels is for himself, for getting caught. He is partly through a 15-year prison sentence. This confession might mean he is never released. The first thing Washington does once he's released from the hospital is scramble to recant his confession. But it's too late. Investigators are already hot on the case. 
it doesn't take long for them to link James Washington to the unsolved murder of Joyce Goodener and charge him for it. The case will go to trial now. For Washington, the walls are closing in. There is, however, a possibility that the conviction will not stick. Washington's attorneys might have an angle to get him off. It turns out one of the medications that Washington takes for his high blood pressure is cardizem, a brand name for the drug diltiazem. One of diltiazem's side effects is hallucinations. Washington now blames his confession on hallucinations brought on by cardizem. He sees people who aren't there and hears voices in his head, he tells prosecutors. Perhaps during his alleged hallucinations, he conflated the last time he saw Joyce Goodener with the murder charge he is already serving and wrongly confessed to killing her. Washington may be telling the truth, but it is unclear if the cause of Washington's sudden symptoms are the medication he's taking or a sign of mental illness. There's no choice. He needs to be evaluated by psychiatrists to determine his mental stability, especially if he's to stand trial for murder. Washington is admitted to DeBerry Special Needs Facility to evaluate his mental health. This maximum security prison provides care for complex medical conditions, including intensive mental health intervention. Over the next month, psychiatrists observe Washington, including Dr. Renee Levon Glenn. His confession to the murder is not made known during these assessments. Washington is witnessed talking to himself and trembling. He tells Dr. Glenn that he sees imaginary people and hears voices. He is also having paranoid ideas. However, Dr. Glenn observes that Washington's symptoms are more evident when he knows he is being watched, as opposed to times when he is observed unawares. Washington is diagnosed with delirium, a potential side effect of his blood pressure medication. It should clear up over time, Dr. Glenn asserts. This is just what his attorneys need. If it can be argued that Washington was hallucinating due to the medication, then his deathbed confession may be dismissed from the evidence and not used in the upcoming trial. At the pretrial, this is what the attorneys argue. They want Washington's confession thrown out, claiming he was not in his right state of mind to give a voluntary confession to anybody. The motion to suppress his confession is denied. It's November 2012. After 17 years, Washington is on trial for the murder of Joyce Goodener, and his deathbed confession is admitted into the evidence. Over three grueling days, the events of July 5, 1995, are debated. Once more, the defense tries to weaken Washington's confession by claiming it should not be trusted due to the medication he had been taking. Dr. Otis Campbell, the medical director attorney, the same man who evaluated Washington on March 3, 2009, testifies. Dr. Campbell says that while Washington appeared lethargic and drowsy, there were no signs he suffered from hallucinations despite him taking cardism. The fact is, he explains, hallucinations are a rare side effect of the medication. He also testifies that on March 3, 2009, the day Washington came to see him about his chest pains and seizures, he didn't mention anything about seeing people who weren't there or hearing voices. 
Dr. Campbell further noted that after May 2009, when Washington had been diagnosed with delirium, he never again reported hallucinations. It was as if his symptoms vanished almost overnight. This raises suspicions in the courtroom. But another pharmacist testifies that the cardism mixed with the other medication Washington took to treat his high blood pressure may have resulted in delusions. While this is the kind of support Washington's attorneys need, it doesn't stick. Dr. Renee Levon Glenn, who observed Washington at DeBerry, refutes that Washington's medication had caused him to hallucinate. Dr. Glenn tells the courtroom she was unaware at the time of Washington's assessment that he had confessed to a murder and that it would have been easy to fake hallucinations to cloak a statement that he wished to recant. After all, he was diagnosed with a condition that would clear up over a short period. No one believed Washington to be seriously mentally ill. Dr. Glenn also points out that delusional confessions are typically more elaborate. That is not the case for Washington's. His confession was, in her words, matter of fact, like he was trying to reach some kind of goal in reporting that. It's exactly the kind of confession one expects from someone on their deathbed. Plus, the fact that Dr. Glenn observed Washington playing up his delusional symptoms when he knew he was being observed is damning. Now, the jury must deliberate. It's hard to imagine what is going through Washington's mind while he waits. What dark thoughts or regrets race through his mind, if any at all. At the end of his three-day trial, James Washington is finally convicted of first-degree murder. He is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In the aftermath of Washington's conviction, his attorneys attempt to appeal. First, they claim Washington was not read his Miranda rights. However, this is rejected because Washington was not in the process of being arrested. When he called Officer Tomlinson into his hospital room to confess. Secondly, his attorneys claim the court should not have included Washington's confession as evidence on the grounds of hearsay. The confession was not on the record, so Tomlinson's retelling of it technically counts as a secondhand testimony. However, while the court will often dismiss hearsay evidence, they usually make exceptions for deathbed confessions. People on their deathbed simply have nothing left to lose, making what they say more trustworthy. Since James Washington believed himself to be dying when he admitted to the murder of Joyce Goodener, the court upholds their original verdict to use his confession as evidence. All attempts to appeal the conviction fail. If Washington had not confessed to the murder of Joyce Goodener on March 3rd, 2009, he very likely would be walking the streets as a free man today. So why did Washington confess in the first place? Had the guilt simply become too much for him, manifesting itself physically? At the heart of many deathbed confessions, there is a religious motivator. Washington might have hoped to be absolved of the unforgivable sin of murder. Perhaps he feared what awaited him on the other side. It's easy to believe that Washington's biggest regret was giving his premature deathbed confession, which no doubt promoted his desperate attempt to recant. But for the family of Joyce Goodener, it gave them a chance for closure after 17 long years not knowing for certain who was responsible for the murder. Sonia Kimbrell, Joyce Goodener's eldest daughter, 
said. I didn't have any trust in the system. All of a sudden, I got this phone call and they said, we think we found him. For the good nurse, justice, though delayed, was served. And James Washington is still in prison today, serving out his life sentence. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we travel back in time to 1831, to a town in Wales torn apart by riot and violence. We witness a massacre and unravel its troubling aftermath. We follow a desperate race to discover the truth and expose a grudge that leads to great injustice. While an innocent man faces death in the scaffold, the guilty escape to start a new life far away. But as the years go by, they are tormented by a shameful secret. Until, close to death, they can bear it no more. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Luke Coons. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. <laughs>